Well, hey there, and welcome to Watering Seeds, a podcast ministry of Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church in Asheville, North Carolina, where we seek to discuss and apply our most recent sermon series through the book of Esther. You can access our sermons at covenantreformedpresbyterianchurch.net slash sermons or by searching Covenant Reformed Asheville on sermonaudio.com. This is pastoral intern Wilson Goins here with our assistant pastor, Jim Curtis. How are you today, Jim? Hey, Wilson, doing great, sir. How great. are you? I, I'm Warm. doing Nobody well. Ever asked the, you know, I host these normally, right? Yes, yes. <clears throat> In a normal season. Uh, nobody ever asks the host how he's doing. So, Wilson, how are you? I, I'm well. I, you doing I cannot all right? complain. It's, You're doing it's, a great job over there. I, okay? I love hosting it. Love hearing about the book of Esther from your pastor, Jim. Well, you know what, man? If, uh, if our normal... Uh, other host is out there somewhere listening to us now. Just want him to know you're doing a great job behind his mic. Okay, so we miss him. We do miss him. We miss him a lot. Sean, if you're out there, miss you, bro. <laughs> anyway, we're here to talk Esther Wilson. You got some good questions today. Well, I sure hope so. Well, Let's I think find I have out. Some huh? Good questions Let's for you. Let's do it. All right. So, um, one thing that you brought up in your sermon and that the text plainly lays out for us is that God has allowed Mordecai uh, to be in this position of, of gatekeeper in the king's court. Um, and through that position, Mordecai discovers this plot uh, against the king to take his life. Uh, and he, he tells the king of this plot, right? It, it comes out. And as we know, it's going to be so that um, God can use Mordecai to protect his people or to save his people from this plot against the people. And uh, we know that Haman the Agagite uh, is then um, raised up in power as well. Um, the king gives him this promotion, and the only reason that Haman exists, which you told us in your sermon, is because King Saul failed to wipe out the Amalekites. Um, so you also brought up Romans chapter 8, 28, that God works all things for good uh, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what I want to ask you, Pastor Jim, is how does God work things for good in our lives, even the mistakes of people like King Saul or these uh, evildoers? How does God use these things? Yeah, so the, the way I brought this out initially in the sermon was bringing up how Queen Esther is still hiding who she is, still hiding her identity. Mm -hmm. And that despite that, the Lord is still working on behalf of his people. Uh, despite um, the ethical questions that we have earlier, you know, in the process of, of, of King Xerxes selecting Esther, that Esther apparently went through. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of good, I think, questions about the morality of that process and whether or not she should have done it. Um, all of these different things point us to, I, I think, the the common thread we've been talking about throughout the book so far, and we will continue to because it's the major theme of the book. And that is nobody can thwart the purposes of God because God alone is sovereign at the top, right? Mm -hmm. So how how does God work for his people? How does he bless his people? Um, how, do, how does God work all things for the good of those who love him? Uh, he, the first thing that Esther tells us is he does it by being alone God, 
right? He's the only one who could do it. Um, certainly the only one who could accomplish it. So uh, we need to take take stock of the fact that God doesn't need us to do the right thing for him to do the right thing. And I think a lot of times we, you know, maybe in our pride, think, well, if I don't do the right thing, then then the right thing is not going to get end up being done. Right? right. And that may be true in, in isolated circumstances. Right. If you're if you're in a position where you can call something out and you're not, you know, doing that, you're not being courageous, you're not, you know, whatever it may be in that situation, it may be that evil slips by. But what the book of Esther tells us is that even, even that doesn't work in the end. God sees all of it, right? Again, he's sovereign over all these different things, Mm -hmm. um, over everything. And so, uh, like I said, I, I focus in the sermon initially on the fact uh, that God doesn't need us to do the right thing to do the right thing. So we should take take comfort in the fact that even when we mess up, even when we sin, uh, uh, you know, we, first of all, we have the assurance of God's grace to us in that uh, even if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But then on the other hand, that doesn't mean that God is then immediately going to turn on us. Mm-hmm. I think we think that too. Mm-hmm. Right. I think when we when we mess up, we think, well, God's going to stop working for me because I'm not perfect. And now we're in the realm of works righteousness. Mm-hmm. Right. Now we're in the realm of I'm trying to please God by my actions so that I will get good things from God. Right. And and that's not how the gospel teaches us obedience. Right. So how does God work together for the good? First, he's sovereign. Uh, he's sovereign even when we don't do the right thing. He's sovereign even when we do the right thing. And. I didn't bring this up in the sermon because I felt like it was a little too obvious, but looking back, I kind of wish I had because it fits the story. Mordecai does the right thing, right? In the, in the, in the minor foreshadowing of what's going to happen in this little plot, this uh, mini plot that happens at the end of chapter two, Mordecai does the right thing and then doesn't get the, the end reward that he deserves. Right. Hmm. Um, he sort of he gets this. Uh, it was recorded in the chronicles of the uh, uh, in the presence of the king, right? Mm-hmm. And then boom, the next verse, right, uh, uh, is verse one of chapter three, and King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Right, right. it kind of hits you out of nowhere. Exactly. Like, uh, one guy does a good thing, you think he's going to get promoted, and it's like, uh, no, it's it's actually the bad. Guy that mm-hmm. just pops out of nowhere. That's right, and the, of course, again, a lot of us are familiar with the Book of Esther, right? Right. Uh, a lot of us know the story, so we know that Mordecai is going to be is going to get rewarded. Sure, but in you know when when you preach through a book like this, right, you you need to deal with what's in front of you because the story is unfolding, right? And so I do think. Uh, it's just as proper from this text to draw the conclusion, the application here, that God works even when we do the right thing, mm-hmm. not because we do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so um, God is setting up His people for redemption, whether His people are doing the wrong thing or the right thing. Mm-hmm. What does that tell us, Wilson? It tells us that redemption is not a matter of us earning it. Mm. Redemption is a matter of God's gracious gift to his people. Okay. Right. And so, uh, this is a super long way to answer the question. How does God work? Well, he does so first sovereignly. Secondly, even if we don't do the right thing. Thirdly, even if we do do the right thing. And so what does that teach us? Fourthly, 
how does God do this? He does it because he's gracious. He does it by his grace. He does it through his means of grace, through the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, the ministry of the church, the fellowship of the saints, prayer, and so on. How does God work for us? Uh, uh, God works for us by the sovereign power he alone has and because he's gracious and merciful to us in actually doing the work. So what that tells us is, okay, uh, that, that the gospel is real in our lives because we didn't earn it mm. and only God can accomplish it. Mm. So how certain does that make the gospel for, for each and every believer? Mm. Absolutely certain, utterly certain. There's something more certain in reality than the fact that God is doing this for his people. Right. Right. Uh, and so, as I mentioned in the sermon, we see this happen again and again and again and again and again in the Bible. Right. I mean, yeah. all the way back to, uh, in particular, uh, uh, the Exodus. Right. Yeah. God works on behalf of his people. Is it because they deserve it? No. When do they get told what to do and how to live? After God redeems them out of Egypt. And only then does he give them the Ten Commandments. Right. Yeah. And so that that's important. That's an important theme for the people of Israel. That's an important theme for the people of God. Because right. then you come to our modern circumstances in the church, and you come to the persecution that that many Christians are experiencing around the world. Um, you come to the difficulties churches face. Uh, I got a friend right now, for example, who is a church planter somewhere in the world. Um, I can't say where, and he's trying to uh, buy a church building back from a restaurant, and uh, the restaurant's going out of business, right? And the local government is getting in the way of the church using that facility because they don't want to rezone it because they make more money off of another restaurant coming in, mm. right? Um, and so that that seems uh, like spiritual warfare to me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like greed to me. So how do we deal with all this stuff? How do we know that even in the midst of that, God is working for his church, whether or not they get the building? takes us all the way back to the same work, the finished work of Jesus, the promise that it is finished, right? Makes all of this absolutely certain, whether or not the details in our lives happen when or how we would like them to happen. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, Jim, in terms of uh, what we've seen here with Haman being um, promoted rather than Mordecai, um, you know, we want to see, or we want to, our first reaction is, oh my gosh, that's that's in not justice. You know, he should have been promoted. He should have been rewarded for what he did. But we know that if we were rewarded according to what we have done, you know, just as a, if we look at the, the whole Bible in terms of our, our sin, then we deserve nothing but condemnation. Um, and we think about the death of Christ you know, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, that Christ suffered in our place. I think that's that's quite interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we're going to find those little detailed type things all throughout the book, mm-hmm. right? Um, because, again, this goes all the way back to the beginning. You know, a lot of people have questioned throughout history, what is this doing in our Bibles? Um, well, I think when you do that, what do you see? You see Jesus. You see the gospel, uh, even with with Haman and Mordecai, right? Uh, God's not mentioned in the book, though. Well, mm-hmm. okay, he's not explicitly mentioned, but 
I mean, you just showed us one of a million ways in this book that we can see God, that we can see what he's doing, that we can connect this to our, our Savior, that we can connect it to the gospel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, what does that teach us? It teaches us the sovereign hand of God in writing Scripture. It teaches us of the sovereign sovereignty of God uh, with the Jews in Susa, even though they're not back. It teaches us with the sovereignty of God between the relationship between Mordecai and the king and Haman and the king. Mm-hmm. Right? God isn't God's sovereignty is not limited to any individual detail, person, place, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, another thing that I'd like to ask you as sure. well, Jim, is with... With Mordecai, you know, you mentioned we've we've probably all read the book or we know the basic story of Esther, but what Mordecai doesn't know, uh, you know, at this point as we're reading, uh, is that God is actually going to use this for what we've said, that he's going to use it to, to save the people. I'm sure we have some listeners who they themselves have sort of felt forgotten or like, you know, remember, I, I, I keep drawing the connection between Joseph in prison and being forgotten. You know, how, how do we hold on to God's providence? How do we trust the Lord when we feel forgotten? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of ways I'd answer it, but in, in, in particular from this story in Esther, I'm going to point us back to the fact that Mordecai, I think Mordecai, uh, above everyone except Esther, felt that problem, hmm. right? He's not with his people. He's in Susa. We don't know why. We don't know what prevented him from returning to the promised land. We don't know any of these details, but obviously he's alone. Because, I mean, even in even in uh, uh, explaining to the, the servants around the king's gate why he doesn't bow down to Haman, mm-hmm. clearly, I think the clear implication is he's the only Jew there. Mm-hmm. Right, so even in his own own immediate context, he's the only one who worships Yahweh. He's the only one, right? so he's very all isolated and alone. And even um, uh, let's just go ahead and mention this as well. This doesn't strike us immediately, but I think it does. Not only is he alone there, and while he still has contact with Esther, he's not with her anymore either. Mm-hmm. So imagine being the only believer in a place, right? I mean, that's where Mordecai's at. Sure. Um, Esther, I think, is is even more isolated, even though she's in the palace, right? She's even though she has maybe a little more power, mm-hmm. uh, but we can talk about that later. But what is? How does Mordecai, in his isolation, in his loneliness, how does he react in those moments uh, of isolation? The Agagite, the ancient uh, Amalekite enemy of God's people, shows up, and what does Mordecai's mind clearly jump to? The fact that that's a dead man walking, that God's word has proclaimed that he should not be alive, mm-hmm. that he's an enemy, that he's that he is wicked. Um, and sure enough, what does Haman try and do, which we're going to learn about this coming week? He tries to destroy all of the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. We're going all the way back to that 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 issue in the wilderness with the Amalekites, and he's just trying to repeat it again. Yeah, talk, right? talk about a hostile work environment. Yeah, for real. And, exactly. And, and also, you know, serving God and in, in sort of the mundane, like right. he's a gatekeeper. I mean, I can't imagine that that's, uh, you know, a super interesting job. Yeah, it might be boring. Um, it, it is clearly prominent, but just because something's prominent doesn't mean right. it's interesting, right? And God even uses that. You know, That's right. So, uh, you know, going back to your question, how, how can we have certainty? Well, Mordecai finds his certainty. He finds his faith in the words of God sp- spoken 
to his people, right? Um, we can, you know, again, depending on why, we could probably ding Mordecai for not going back to the promised land. Mm-hmm. We could probably ding Mordecai for a lot of different things in the book, right? But in his moment of pure loneliness, of complete and total pressure, why are you not bowing down? Why are you not obeying the king? Why are you not bowing down? Why are you not obeying the king? His response is to firmly and unwaveringly believe the promises that God has given to his people. In particular, the promise that this man is an enemy and that this man shouldn't be alive. And so, you know, I say dead man walking. Uh, I mean, literally, Haman should be dead. I mean, God has given a divine injunction against the man's life. And Mordecai knows that and says, or thinks to himself clearly, well, I'm not going to bow down to him. I'm not going to obey this law. Why? Because a higher authority has spoken. Hmm. So moments of peer pressure, moments of of personal pressure, moments of personal depression, moments of, of loneliness and isolation, I think we should preach to ourselves the same thing that the promises of God are no less certain now despite what's going on around me the promises of God are completely and totally sure why because the highest authority anywhere the highest authority in existence has spoken them and is not retracting them cannot retract them because of his unchanging nature okay so I, I think, you know, it's easy as a pastor to sit here behind a microphone without any context, right? And be like, oh, we'll just trust the Bible more. And, and yeah, you should trust the Bible, okay? But that's not, that's not precisely what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying right. to get at is uh, don't just trust your Bible. Trust your Bible enough to go read it and love it and embrace it as God's love and grace and mercy written to you, hmm. telling you about Jesus Christ, telling you about who he is, telling you about how faithful he is, such that you find yourself in the dark moment of isolation, of peer pressure, of bow down, bow down, bow down, bow down. And you can say, as Mordecai does, no, there's a higher authority who's spoken. You know who else did that, Wilson? Jesus, right? How does Jesus respond in his darkest moments of temptation by Satan himself? Hmm. A higher authority than you have spoken. Right? And what God has said is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God says, do not put him to the test. God says, uh, he alone is whom you should worship. So get away from me. Right? You don't have the authority to offer me the nations. Right? Mm. That's the same thing that Mordecai is doing in a different context and on a different level, of course, uh, in this situation. And so... Whether it's moments of temptation, it's moments of doubt, whether it's moments of darkness, whether it's uh, uh, depression, whatever it is, I'm not worthy, I'm not worth it, I'm not whatever, God's promises come back through to us Yeah, through this story. And, and many of God's promises in Scripture we don't understand until we're in the thick of it. I think uh, you know, Luther said that he didn't understand many of the Psalms until he was in the depths of affliction. That's so good. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, what, the Psalms, I think, speak to, to Mordecai's position as well. And for us, if we're in a similar position, because 
so many of them are about the wicked prospering. Exactly. Right? Just look at the yep. wicked prospering. But we know the end of the wicked, mm-hmm. and we know the end of the righteous. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and and that gets um, you know to that age old question, and and really it comes out of here, right? Why does the wicked Haman? Why does he get propped up, but Mordecai, who's the righteous one, how does he get nothing? Mm-hmm. How does he? Why is he the one in the position that has to bow down to Haman? What did Haman do? And uh, I think the answer of the Psalms to this question is the same answer we get here in Esther. Well. Despite those details, Wilson, who's still up top? Who's still sovereignly working, whether or not God's people get rewarded in this life for what they do? Whether or not the righteous um, uh, get their due reward, right? And in many ways, going back all the way back to um, uh, our, our series in Matthew, mm-hmm. uh, Pastor Sean had been doing, um, in many ways, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you recall, uh, don't, don't pray like the Pharisees do. Uh, don't pray like they do yelling, you know, don't, don't get the trumpets blasting for your gift, right? Don't do these different things for, I tell you, they have received their reward. Mm. And so, uh, what Jesus comes in and does is he shows us, oh yeah, this world has a lot of rewards. This world has a lot to give you. This world has a lot of, uh, of, of fleeting joy and material wealth to give you. But that's all you get. Right. Right. That, uh, uh, for I tell you, they have received their reward. But what are we supposed to do? Shut ourselves in our prayer closets, and our Father who hears in secret will reward us in secret. Mm. Right. Um, he will give us something far better than the praise of men, which is fleeting, far better than the resources, the wealth, the whatever of men that is fleeting. That's never enough. It's never enough. It's never what, enough. What doth it profit a man exactly. to gain the whole world but forfeit his own soul? Exactly right. So uh, is it that big of a problem that the righteous here suffers and the wicked prospers? No, actually, that's the primary paradigm that we see the world working through in the gospel, uh, in, in the scriptures, mm-hmm. right? And in the gospel. Of course, in the gospel message, because uh, who is the most righteous person ever? The one who was most mistreated and unjustly murdered on a cross. The most humble man exactly. to ever live. Exactly. So uh, so uh, the logic that the Bible gives us then, that, uh, particularly Peter, right, is that if you suffer and die like the righteous one, if you reject the rewards of this world— if you would rather have the station of Haman the Agagite, well, let me tell you, he gets his reward. And what's his reward? Spoiler alert. He dies, right? Mordecai gets something better, right? And why? Because Mordecai trusts in God. So if Jesus, the most righteous person ever, was crucified, suffered, that was it was painful, it was difficult, how and then was glorified, how will we... Uh, how, what will happen for us who are in Christ if we suffer in this life? We will be glorified with him in the next. We the crown of that. life. Exactly. So, yeah, I, you know, we see this happen. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. Who the heck is Haman? What did he do? Why is he on, even on the scene? Uh, all great questions. I think I think the, the sudden appearance of Haman and the sudden rise, the rocket rise of Haman is supposed to shock us. And make us ask these questions, but I think the end result of that is, oh yeah, well same, same old, same old. 
right? It's just, it's just everything we've ever experienced. It's just a w- wicked prospering and the righteous suffering again. And you know what? Jesus suffered, so I'd rather suffer than have the things that this life has to offer me. Hmm. Absolutely, Pastor Jim. Well, that's all the questions we have today. Ooh, letting us out early today, we're, Mr. Host. I love it. We're out early today. I love it. Well, uh, Wilson, I appreciate your time as always. Uh, I appreciate your questions. Um, I'm thankful that these questions are so uh, uh, applicable. You know, in Sunday school, we've been talking a lot about the so what in mm. our study through the attributes of God. Why does this matter? So I appreciate that, man. And uh, look forward to uh, to next week uh, when we get to the uh, potentially uh, uh, interesting, the actual mm. big plot later on in chapter three. So until then, brother. All right. Look forward to it. Thank you.